0: Welcome everyone to today's session of uh, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, or SACPAW. SACPA is a voluntary uh, non-profit organization that relies on the support of its members and um, audience attendees um, to keep it going. So thank you all for coming. My name is Christina Cuthbertson. I'm the Public Relations Manager at the Southern Alberta Art Gallery, and I'll be your moderator for today. Uh, we have just a few housekeeping items before we get started, so I'll just uh, run through those and we'll, we'll get going. Um, I'd just like to remind everyone to please turn off your cell phones um, before the talk, and also just to note that today's session is being recorded. There's a basket in the center of everyone's table, and today's fee is $10. So if everyone can contribute and just delegate someone at your table to count the money prior to SACPA coming around to collect it, that would be hugely appreciated. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the support of the University of Lethbridge, who sends out SACPA postings, and also Country Kitchen Catering, who have prepared our meal for today. So a big thank you to them. Um, today's session will follow the usual format. We'll have a 30-minute presentation by our speaker, who I'll uh, introduce in just a second. Um, 30 minutes for lunch, and then 30 more minutes for a question period at the at the end of uh, at the end of today's session. So while you're uh, eating your delicious lunch, um, you can p- figure out some stumpers for our talker to, for our speaker today. So, it's my pleasure to introduce to you um, Ken Allen. He's assistant professor at the University of Lethbridge in the Department of Art, where he teaches courses on modern and contemporary art, the histories of photography and experimental film, um, as well as introduction to theory. Allen received his B.A. from the University of Guelph, his M.A. from York University, and his Ph.D. at the University of Toronto. His 2004 dissertation was titled The Conceptual Art Magazine Projects and Their Precedents, which is an area of interest, continuing interest for our speaker. Allen's writings have been published extensively, and he's also a member of the editorial collective Public, which is a multidisciplinary, cultural, and academic journal based in Toronto. His talk today will investigate the intersection between art and politics, and I invite you uh, in join, joining me in welcoming uh, Ken Allen.
1: Thank you very much. Um, How is the sound back there? Can you hear me clearly at the back of the room? Okay, thank you. Um, In this talk, I'll give a brief overview of some ways in which modern artists have dealt with political and social issues. This first painting that you see up on the screen is by Benjamin West, an American painter from Pennsylvania who made much of his career in England. The painting depicts the death of General Wolfe following his defeat um, of the French General uh, Montcalm on the Plains of Abraham at the Battle of Quebec in 1759. We generally think of political art as being opposed to the political and economic establishment, while art made in support of the establishment is somehow apolitical. But in fact, most politically explicit work... um, up until this day, has been in support of the, of the establishment. And uh, this was the norm from ancient times up until the late 18th century. So the death, death of General Wolfe is an example of a, a very political work of art, but one that was made in, in the service of British colonialism. When Wolfe died, only three or four people were actually present, not 13 The surgeon who is shown holding a handkerchief to the still-alive Wolf's heart was Robert Adair, who in fact arrived long after Wolf's death. General Monckton, who clutches his chest at right, was at this moment lying severely wounded on the battlefield, while another character in the painting was in the rear battle lines at the time. The man that you see in the green coat at left is the American William Johnson wearing frontiersman's clothing. Johnson had earlier convinced the Iroquois to fight on the British side in the earlier French and and, uh, Indian War. But Wolf, uh, rather, uh, Johnson, Johnson was not even in Quebec um, during this battle. So because West was American-born, He wanted to make sure that not only General Wolfe was honored, but that the contribution of the British Americans to the British colonial project was was noted. We see a a Mohawk Indian, but in this uh, battle, they fought on the French side rather than with the British. (laughs) Depicting a member of the enemy forces lounging around on the ground is problematic uh, from a historical standpoint. And the the native man is there to signal primarily the the North American context and location. The individuals form a composition rather like a wheel lying on its side, if you think of uh, a wheel like that, with with the figure of wolf being the hub. Um, There's a, a circulation of attention around the figure of wolf, like this. But you'll notice right there that there's an, an empty gap, and the role of that gap is to include us, the viewer, in the, um, in the event, and to make us feel a part of it, and, and so that we'll identify more strongly with the work and its message. Above the clouds of smoke at left, we see a, a church steeple indicating the city of Quebec. The sky in this work performs a symbolic function in the painting um, because moving from left to right, it suggests a transition from the blue sky to dark cloud, rather like the passage from life to death. The British flag that's held up, um, it it merges with the dark cloud, um, the death of Wolfe being a dark day for Britain. So this is a a very readable painting that functions as a propaganda painting. Um, However, a single painting cannot constitute a propaganda campaign. It must be part of a, a larger system of shaping information in British society of the day by using all available forms of communication and operating together to surround individuals with the same information and the same point of view. This painting by John Constable, the Haywain, from 1821 might seem strange to consider in terms of political art, but in art history, we have to consider both what is present and what is not present. In this case, what's not in the painting is important. It's a beautiful landscape painting, and like many of Constable's paintings, it was painted on his father's quite extensive land holdings. Because Constable was from a wealthy land-owning family, and many of his paintings depict his father's property, he would have a very different understanding of the landscape than the agricultural workers uh, sometimes depicted in the paintings. During this period, workers in the countryside were having a very rough economic time. There was a great deal of social unrest, leading to outbreaks of violence and arson. Those social conflicts, however, are invisible in Constable's paintings. The problems are papered over, and we're provided with a peaceful image that is somewhat fictional, or at least selective, uh, in, in what it tells us about rural life in England at this time. So this painting could be considered political by exclusion, and this is probably the norm for most modern artwork. This uh, photograph is by Lewis Hine. It's called Breaker Boys from the Child Labour Series, 1911. In 1906, Lewis Hine was hired as a documentary photographer for the National Child Labour Committee in order to help promote the banning of child labour in agriculture, the caning and textile industries, and mining. When we now see his photographs, they're typically pure photos, uh, framed and and beautifully printed, without any accompanying text to inform us as to what's going on in the image. At the same time, however... uh, Hein used these images in public reform-minded lantern slide lectures, uh, pamphlets, and posters, um, always including detailed captions mentioning the children's working conditions, their ages, and their salaries. By removing such information, when these photographs are now shown in an art context, the meaning of the work changes. Uh, but in their original practical function, as reform, uh, as part of a reform campaign, Heinz photographs did contribute to transforming opinions and laws uh, regarding child labor. This is a photograph by an American photographer named Ouija. It's called "The Cooler" from around 1942. This American photographer, Ouija, on the other hand, was a a photographer for tabloid newspapers and magazines. He specialized in documenting nighttime crime scenes and nightlife in New York. He almost takes an adversarial role uh, in in which he invades other people's spaces and, and privacy. Luigi's photographs of marginalized people are not intended to help improve their situation by trying to motivate the authorities to, to help, but are instead sensational images of social degradation. Other street photographers might take similar images in order to demonstrate their own social conscience to their audience. But this is also problematic as... The photographs may serve to glorify the photographer as a heroic type who ventures into dangerous parts of the city to bring back photographic trophies. That kind of documentary photography may initially seem to promote a social conscience, but instead it, it can satisfy a taste for exoticism instead. This uh, next slide is a a project by Martha Rosler. It's called The Bowery in Two Inadequate Descriptive Systems from 1981. The artist Martha Rosler made an extended project 40 years later that dealt with the same Bowery area of New York where Ouija was most active as a photographer. Her photographs present traces of Skid Row alcoholics with their discarded bottles, bags, shoes, and so on. And on the opposite side, she adds a list of terms for drinking and and getting drunk. Rosler suggests that by photographing the empty scenes inhabited by these people, rather than focusing on the bodies of the individuals themselves, she can avoid the problems of exploitation and sensationalism, or of being the photographer as hero, and instead dwell on the social conditions themselves. Next up, we have two images. One is a, a collaborative sculpture by George Gross and John Hartfield. They belong to the German data movement. And the other is a photograph of a French war amputee who is attaching a tool to his, uh, his arm as a prosthetic device it's from 1919. This image takes us back to the post-World War I period and the German data movement centered in Berlin. This is a collaborative sculpture and on the right, we have this documentary photograph of the war amputee who is a a kind of a social character type who is often found in um, political art of this period. It's an anti-war sculpture that criticizes militarism and the damage done to human lives by war's violence. We call much work of the Berlin Dadists political art due to its content. But because the stated aim of political art is to effect change, we also have to consider its effectiveness. There's a distinction between art with a political subject matter and art that actually creates change at some level. One of the Berlin Dadists' uh, largest exhibitions only attracted 300 people. And um, so the work had an immediate effect only on that small number of people. By comparison, a critically written newspaper editorial or letter to the editor may have had an immediate audience of 300,000 people. So in terms of promoting awareness of an issue that might lead to widespread change, uh, uh, an an exhibition of single freestanding work um, is usually not very effective unless the mass media goes out of its way to publicize the show. This work could be seen as politically effective, however, in terms of incremental change, in the sense that any alteration in the world or voicing of opinion produces some kind of effect. Next, we have a, a book cover by John Hartfield, this is the same fellow who collaborated on the last sculpture, and this is from 1931. The book is Petroleum by the American writer Upton Sinclair. One of the, one of the lessons of government propaganda is that it's largely a waste of time to devote your efforts to single individuals because it's too, too inefficient and uh, time-consuming. Instead, the aim of modern propaganda is to reach individuals within a mass audience by reaching thousands of individuals simultaneously, yet in such a way that the individual feels that the message has been created just for them. The best way to reach a mass audience is by using the mass media. In order to, to uh, consider the larger political effectiveness of the Berlin datus we have to look at their publications magazines, advertisements, book covers, and posters, all of which were an integral part of Berlin-Datist production. In the early 1930s, John Hartfield began designing book covers for a left-wing publishing house known as Malik Verlag. Hartfield considered these mass-produced book covers to function as political artworks um, in, in the manner of being um, handheld agitation posters. It's a later magazine cover or newspaper cover by John Hartfield. It's for the publication AIZ, the Workers' Illustrated Newspaper, and it's titled The Executioner of the Third Reich, from 1933. Between 1929 and 1938, Hartfield designed magazine covers and inside pages for AIZ. AIZ was first published in Berlin, but then it shifted production to Prague after the Nazi takeover. This is one of Hartfield's many anti-Nazi photomontages. He first designed the photomontage, which was like a a collage made up of cut-up photographs, then had it reproduced in the newspaper by means of the photogravure process uh, of uh, reproduction so that it functioned as a mass-reproduced artwork. By using the mass media in this way, Hartfield was able to avoid the problems of his earlier datist work, which could only be seen by a few people at a time. Now it could be seen by thousands of people simultaneously. And at one point, the, this newspaper had circulations of hundreds of thousands. The source photographs that he uses to, uh, to cut up, such as this one of Hermann Goering were often Nazi propaganda images themselves in the first place. Hartfield recombined fragments of these images in order to provide them with radically new meanings. This next image is a a poster by Alexander Rodchenko. It's called Books from 1925. It was made in the Soviet Union. Following the Russian Revolution, a group of avant-garde artists emerged known as the Constructivists. They operated with government support for about a decade. And like John Hartfield, Alexander Rodchenko believed that socialist art should use the mass media to convey its message to a large audience. In the Soviet Union, there were constant propaganda campaigns, which were often short-lived, and the artists wanted to contribute to them. Because paintings take a long time to make, they would not be uh, useful tools for what was called agitprop work. By the time the paintings would be finished, the issue that they were to deal with would have long since passed. And furthermore, paintings, uh, by their nature, can only be seen by a few people at once. With ephemeral posters illustrated publications and the like, um, exposure and mass distribution is not a problem. For these reasons, most constructivists abandoned traditional easel painting and began working with mass media and public art. This next slide shows two images. One is by um, Vyacheslav Mirjopolsky, a painter, in his work A Leader in the Pioneers, from 1949, and the other is a photograph by Alexander Rodchenko called The Pioneer, from 1928. After 1932, there was a, a massive change in the Soviet Union with the establishment of the dogma of socialist realism and the banning of modern art. Rather than challenging the audience... Art's role was now seen to, clearly, to, to be to clearly illustrate political ideology and present positive images of the rulers and the nation. Maria Polsky's painting is a, a good example of socialist realism, and I pair it with this earlier photograph by Rodchenko dealing with the same subject matter, the pioneers who were like uh, politicized girl guides or scouts. The socialist realists worked primarily in a 19th century realistic painting style. They were also communists, but they argued that no one could understand what the avant garde constructivists were doing, and so they were just confusing the population. The, the socialist realists claimed that by working in an understandable way, they could communicate clearly to the public, and therefore their production could, could operate as a vehicle for change in society. The avant-garde constructivists, however, they believed that a new society required new forms. They argued that socialist realism had revolutionary content without accompanying revolutionary form. And by this, they meant that the consequence of using traditional 19th century painting styles was that conventional forms would carry within themselves the ideology out of which they originally emerged. Therefore, the realist could not help but remain stuck in a a 19th century way of thinking because there was no way to escape the past if one uses the methods of the past. The avant-garde work uh, disorients the viewer and it provokes them to think about what it is that they are looking at. The socialist realist image is meant to make the viewer identify with uh, the message in a very straightforward fashion. Its space is very like our own experienced space. This presents the illusion of wholeness and continuity, which is more amenable to a totalitarian system, while the fragmentary um, is a a piece of the unknown, which could be uh, somewhat threatening for the authorities, who at this point in the early 30s were not encouraging dialogue, but rather obedience. This next image is uh, an abstract painting by Piet Mondrian called Composition with Yellow, Blue, Black, Red, and Gray from 1921. And like the landscape painting by John Constable that we saw earlier on, it may seem an an unusual painting to discuss in relation to political art. But um, with Mondrian's painting, we engage with uh, a utopian idea of the political. A colleague of Mondrian's by the name of Theo van Dosberg wrote about this style of painting, "'Although we cannot grasp the perfect harmony, "'the absolute equilibrium of the universe, "'each and everything in the universe "'is nevertheless subordinated to the laws of this harmony, "'this equilibrium. "'It's the artist's business to discover and give form "'to this concealed harmony, "'this universal equilibrium of things, "'to demonstrate its conformity to its own laws.'" the truly exact work of art is a metaphor of the universe obtained with artistic means. So, paintings like these um, are not decorative designs. Instead, they were understood by their makers to to, uh, depict the fundamentals of reality in a philosophical sort of sense. The German philosopher Theodor Adorno he suggested that such art provides an, an abstract model for future transformation. Adorno argued that the people who look at explicitly political art tend to already hold the same opinions that are promoted in that art. Therefore, if the audience and the art are already in agreement, then there's no room for changes in people's opinions. Because explicitly political art only reinforces already held beliefs by this way of thinking. Uh, it's therefore essentially conservative, regardless of how radical the subject matter appears to be. So for Adorno, the main function of political art is to allow the audience and the artist to um, have the opportunity to, to socialize with, with like-minded individuals and to feel good about their, their contribution. But the effect is not one of change, and which is what politics is all about. Using Adorno's idea then, the, the audience for Mondrian's painting is conscious of living in an imperfect world The painting's quest for perfect equilibrium of abstract counterbalances um, yields a material demonstration of the possibility of freedom and social harmony that does not yet exist in the world. It's a difficult art that requires the viewers to expand their way of thinking about art, so already there is change at the individual level. When the audience encounters a perfectly composed artwork, they contrast that perfection with their own degraded environment, which seems all the more flawed and problematic. The perfect artwork, therefore, becomes a utopian object um, that uh, serves also as a model for action, in that one may feel compelled to alter and improve one's own uh, environment. So Adorno suggests that through perfection in composition, and artwork can become an analogy for what should be. And this is the creation of a just life. This next work is much more contemporary. It's by a Polish-American-Canadian artist by the name of Krzysztof Wodicko. It's uh, called Federal Courthouse, London, Ontario, from 1983. Many uh, post-war artists took new approaches to the political. Christoph Voditsko is best known for his building projections that he started in Halifax in 1981, then continued to produce around the world. He understood that we become so used to seeing public buildings and monuments that we stop paying attention to them, and they become invisible to our consciousness. Yet these places are are, um, buildings and, and locations of political power, communicating rhetorical messages to the public by means of their architectural style and conventions. The public may not be aware that they are being addressed by these buildings. And so Voditsko saw his task as being that of reactivating the buildings in a symbolic sense. So his building projections are very temporary symbol attacks carried out at nighttime. Voditsko writes about his work The attack must be unexpected, frontal, and must come with the night when the building, undisturbed by its daily functions, is asleep and when its body dreams of itself, when the architecture has its nightmares. His projection on the federal courthouse building in London, Ontario, shows hands gripping metal bars on the two wings of a building that contain prisoners waiting to attend criminal trials. Voditsko suggests that buildings can speak to the emotional situation of those who inhabit them, and one needs to draw that reality out. Witnesses to the projections say that they very much altered their sense of the buildings for a long time afterwards. Voditsko's wish was that his interventions would prompt citizens to view public architecture and monuments as being truly in the public sphere, so that we can all... uh, partial fragment of an installation by an American artist, Fred Wilson. This is called Mining the Museum from 1992. The American artist Fred Wilson made an interesting exhibition by reorganizing a museum's collection in his 1992 project, Mining the Museum. It's a fairly complex project, so I'm just showing you one change that he made to the museum display. As with most museums, what's, what is on display at this museum in Baltimore is only a fragment of the museum's holdings. He spent several weeks going through the museum collection, both considering what was on display and um, also looking through the basement to see what was in storage. Like most museum collections, it, it tended to stress the positive and not deal with disturbing facts of the past, In one display case, he found a selection of early American metalwork, complex silversmith work of a type owned by leading members of society. Wilson has a mixed Aboriginal and African-American background, and he tends to address those aspects of his own personal history in his work. When looking through the holdings in the museum's basement, he came across manacles, like handcuffs for slaves, So he inserted the slave manacles right there into the metalwork display in order to disturb the dignity of the display and also to um, point to the suppressed past that's locked up in the basement and considered inappropriate for display. This is the last work I'll be discussing. It's by Christian Philipp Müller, and it's called Illegal Border Crossing Between Austria and the Principality of Liechtenstein from 1993. And it's paired, in this case, with a painting by uh, Kaspar David Friedrich. It's entitled The Solitary Tree, a very old painting from 1822. This work by uh, Müller, it, it belongs to the category of performance art. This kind of artwork is is very different from painting because there is no object. Instead, there's an event, and the event is recorded by photographic and written documentation. The documents testify to the fact that the event occurred. We first see European landscape painting in the the 16th and 17th centuries, but it really takes off in in the 19th century, around the same time as there emerges interest in nationalism and also the nation-state. As nations form, so too do national borders and boundaries. National borders can be quite arbitrary, uh, points of division, but they're powerful things and they have immense consequences for those who live within them and for those who must cross those borders for whatever reason. Mueller dramatized the relation between national borders and landscape by staging an illegal border crossing, carried out by merely hopping across a ditch that separates two countries. It's a very simple thing to do, but one that can have dramatic consequences, as Mueller discovered when he was arrested by border guards and forbidden to re-enter the country for three years. It seems strange that hopping across a ditch could have such results, but by making this work, Mueller directs our attention to um, lines of uh, national division that we all internalize and accept, but that are somewhat irrational and strange when encountered on the ground." In this presentation, I've tried to suggest some ways in which artists have dealt with political and social issues. They can do so in, in very surprising ways. We might tend to expect political art to be of a very direct nature, one that is illustrative, like uh, political advertisements. But in fact, political art can be in support of existing institutions. They can be subversive in relation to them, apolitical in the sense of masking social divisions, political in subject matter but not in effectiveness, or utopian in its suggestion that we can have a continual obligation to engage in what uh, Theodore Adorno referred to as the creation of a just life. Thank you.